But I got to a point in some ways, not in a traditional sense, but in a mental sense, I was kind of addicted to winning. I say that being respectful to the, the misuse of that word, right? Yeah, addicted to winning. Because <laughs> being in that space, I mean, it's there's a reason these fires are burning. It's, it's, not, it's not because we're okay with looking after each other. It's because everybody's addicted to winning. We are, we are absolutely force-fed this from the machines of capitalism, of all of the other structures that we live within. Yes, and say, how do we be more meaningful for people? How do we actually stand for these things? Yeah, well, I mean, the difference between that facade that everybody can immediately see behind now, right? And so in that, to go from addicted to winning and being able to change minds and hearts for making money to having to change minds and hearts to save the planet are very different. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. It is a distinct honor and pleasure to have my dear friend and I you know I say that on a lot of episodes but this one goes deeper you know it really really does uh to have my dear friend Eamon Storr with us he is truly when I say the word co-conspirator what does that mean it means that we've sat at many tables and been like yo we got to do this thing and it's going to be crazy but we can make it happen and for the last almost seven years now uh, I've had the honor and pleasure to to walk next to this man all over the planet Mexico New York Europe uh, we've really we've really done the thing um, he's also an entrepreneur, but I think and I'm going to say this and he's going to, you know, he's going to cringe a little bit and I'm okay with that, but he truly is, um, one of the last believers of truth. Truth is at the core of where Eamon is and how he operates. Uh, he's the former CEO, uh, on the U S and North American side of the guardian. And that should, those two things glue together. And after his run there, he founded fair share. Uh, a quote-unquote impact consultancy driven by the belief that making a contribution to the world is no longer just a nice to have. Eamon, that's how I introduce you in many other ways. How do you introduce yourself these days? Gosh, uh, thank you for that introduction. And uh, I'd forgotten how many places we've been together. Well, I know we've been, been together in a lot of rooms, but yeah, we have traveled a bit. How do I describe myself? I um, I kind of like an entrepreneur in training. Uh, You know, I wasn't, I'm not a natural entrepreneur. I don't know what that means, actually. But, you know, I spent 30 years of my life in the corporate world. And only really when I got into my kind of midlife did I decide that it was an itch that I needed to scratch. And I think that came out of my time at The Guardian um, in terms of feeling that there was this excitement of, deciding your own destiny and doing the things that just you really want to do so yeah uh and you know fair share as you say is like we're sort of really like an impact consultancy where we we look to clients our kind of mission is you know we help try and ignite courageous brands to drive societal change and kind of what that really means in practice is we work with well-intentioned corporate leaders to try and better execute on those intentions. Because um, I sort of, I think I'm an optimist generally. It's kind of difficult at the moment sometimes, but you know, my, the, my hope, well, my belief actually in having worked for years in the corporate sector is there's a significant portion of business leaders in America and beyond um, that do feel... Um, a responsibility and a focus on doing more good in the world, not just because they woke up one day and all decided to be good people, but because actually increasingly it's like a business imperative. 
The issue is uh, largely because of the world that I lived in for 25 mm. years is they just don't execute on it very well. They, those briefs, you and I have worked on, Mark, with agencies and stuff like that, is those briefs of like, how do we drive greater impact? What does purpose mean in a corporate environment? They put them into PR companies and agencies. They put them into ad agencies. They make ads. They do corporate yeah. comms, and it's just not that authentic. So, you know, like the work we've done with you, you and others, like um, what we try and do is to say, you know, if you really, if you really do care about um, how you get a better balance of profit and purpose in your life as a business, then we help you do more authentic programs. We try and help you do things that actually really land in the real world and. And when they do good stories that yeah well i mean my experience with you is as a boardroom whisperer right so everything that you've just said there has to be the ability to meet people as a facilitator let me use that language instead to say i walked in your world i know what your kpis are i know what you have to do without overtly having to say it and then also having the person on the other side who's got the megaphone and there's literally burning barrels behind them and saying why would I ever work with this side? This is the enemy. You know, like, well, it can't be the enemy if we actually have to get to where we need to get to. So to be able to see both worlds is an incredible talent and skill. And to walk in both of those is is rare, right? Because you have the advocate saying, well, who are you actually doing this for? Are you doing it for the check? Are you doing it for corporate? And you have corporate saying, you know, I, I hope that you have our best interests in mind and you don't align us with somebody who's too hot or, or who's going to go off the rails, right? So that's a really delicate, delicate line to walk. But a quote of yours, and I'd love you to respond, but a quote of yours is, the needle's not moving far or fast enough. The greedy to continue to get rich to the detriment of the needy. I mean, that's the distillation. So how do you walk on both sides of that? Like, how do you make that happen? I think... Um... <clears throat> Where, we, where I sort of try and focus our attention is I think we, we kind of know that the, the, the situation we're in, whether it's climate change, whether it's the societal issues we face uh, and sort of the sort of fractional life that we live in, like politicians just aren't going to fix that, right? It's, they're, they're too, I was just only looking today on The Guardian, funnily enough, about you know, how, how many kind of Republicans are changing sort of changing their position on Roe versus Wade, they're being driven by what their polls right. are telling them is going to get them back in. So to drive really meaningful change, and I know you've spoken with previous guests about the UN SDGs and stuff like that, it, it's going to have to come from business. It's not going to come from philanthropy, and it's not going to come from politicians. Yes, they have an important role to play when it comes to like legislating on things like ocean plastics and, and climate change, but the real focus, the where, where we can make a real difference is is with the enterprise business leaders and to do that we have to find solutions that deliver purpose or, or greater impact if you like with profit and there's great examples of that you know you can look at the work i don't know parlay for the oceans have done with adidas and they're getting to a place now you know with these these different these different effects are coming into play now where you know you can build sustainable apparel um you know from sustainable materials um, more cost effectively than the dirty materials and with greater margin so so there's great opportunity out there and i think we're at this kind of really important inflection point the hard part of it as you and i know is how many meetings we've sat in with corporate leadership where that intention is mm. still to bias on the profit right it's like the stories are are great to have up to a point and so I think the hardest part of what we do, and I think any entrepreneurs and activists who are in this space is, when, when you talk about the intention of corporate business, is like, exactly. how far does it actually exactly go? Exactly right. So just to give, give you at home an idea of where I want to go today, Eamon is, and I say this with all sincerity, one of the smartest people I know. So I wanted to start at the forefront and be like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we care about. Here's the big hairy goals. He talked about the SDGs, of course, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And I want to go back and figure out how Eamon gets here. And we're going to go all the way back to the British Navy. We're, we're going we're gonna to really take this thing back because what's important, <laughs> what's yeah. most important to me as, as an individual at this moment is how many people can be holding the tip of the spear into actual impactful change? And what I've watched you do is talk to a thousand people to get the one Adidas. 
And that kind of relentlessness requires a certain skill set, but also requires a history of being able to be super resilient, right? And resilience is not something that we are breeding in this day and age. People get their feelings hurt really quickly. People choose a side and it's that side wins or nothing. There is no room to have conversation about, oh, maybe that part's right and my part's wrong. And in that, you know, the flexibility is trapping us. I'm looking outside my window right now. You can see this. Vancouver, British Columbia, or the unceded territories of Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples has the worst air quality in the world today. Today, as we record this, because we're trapped amongst all of these forest fires. The problems aren't coming there right in this moment, and they require this kind of energy. So folks, please keep it locked. We're on Better with Eamon Store. We're going to hear how we get to this level of resilience and what's important to us. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back to Better. As you heard in our last segment, Eamon is genuinely in boardrooms, changing the the minds and the actions of some of the world's biggest companies to do better than an ad campaign. And the impact that I've got to witness firsthand of his work and navigating both the margins and the boardrooms simultaneously is amazing. But as you know, with this show, what we want to know is how. Like how how does Eamon's store get to this place in life? How do you go from being born where you're born into a short career in the Navy, which I'd love to hear all about. And then to this place, like what happens for you? Tell us a little bit about your journey, brother. <laughs> uh, you know, I joined the Navy because I didn't know what else to do. In all okay. honesty, I grew up on the water. I was a sailor when I was a kid. I felt it was something my father wanted me to do. And uh, it looked like a lot of fun as well. I joined as a trainee helicopter pilot. And I should never have got in, really, as a training <laughs> helicopter pilot. Anyway, I should never have got in for a couple of reasons. One is to fly helicopters or any kind of aircraft, you kind of have to know how they work. And I had no interest, nor any qualifications in that space. <laughs> I love flying, but I didn't care for how they actually fly. And the second thing is, which is probably like a bigger issue in the Navy, is I, I'm not great with being told what to do. <laughs> so what made me think that being in the Navy was a good idea, I don't quite know. But I learned a lot of other things and had an awful lot of fun. And we actually crashed a couple of helicopters in the process. But it was it was a short career. But you know, one of the things we did learn in that in that world was how to look after yourself, the importance of brotherhood and and commitment, and also just how to carry yourself in public spaces, whether that's speaking and engaging or all those things, but you know, when I left the Navy and it, it was, I wasn't there for very long, and I wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it definitely proved fairly quickly to not be a career for me. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I got into advertising just because it seemed fun, and back in the eighties, it was a lot of a lot of fun. But I, I think the real inflection point for me, the real turning point for me, was I was pretty good at like standing in front of clients and presenting and putting persuasive arguments forward, and I was pretty good at running global accounts, and I you know, got got myself to be like a bit like you say, that sort of boardroom whisperer. You're working with CMOs and you're kind of guiding them. And I traveled 86 countries and advertising group I was in. But I got to a point, and I think uh, in my midlife, where I really loved my job. You know, I, I, I really kind of lived for it. And I was kind of, in, a, in a some ways, not in a traditional sense, but in a mental sense, I was kind of addicted to winning. I loved winning and we were pretty good at winning. But I found myself working really long hours um, with young children whose, you know, I didn't really know their teachers. I wasn't entirely, I certainly couldn't navigate their school. A wife who was like, felt that I was never present. Um, and, I, and I sort of found myself at this point where I was, I had all the material trappings of, of a good life, you know, a boat and a house and fancy holidays and business trips all over the place. And I just felt, empty. I was in increasingly feeling like lost. I was fortunate at the time that, you know, I was recruited to go and run the Guardian. It was like going from one extreme of an industry to the other, um, going from a very successful ad group that made a lot of money that I think had a veneer of values. Um, you know, the comp the big, I was with the biggest global ad group and I don't think values were a thing. We recycled because it ticked boxes. You know, we 
had diversity policies that we didn't really live. They were just, everything was about ticking boxes and reports. And then I went to The Guardian, which is a completely different animal, you know, 200-year-old news company, um, deeply committed to uh, the values of which it, it lives by. And it was like this, it was like this epiphanal moment. I was working with journalists who earn a fraction of what sales execs worked in the ad industry. I mean, they really do earn a fraction. And yet, these were people that can do piercing interviews of presidents of countries, you know, that get themselves into the middle of civil unrest and riots in Baltimore and end up beaten up or, or locked up. Like, they were really committed. And, I, and that, was, that, for me, was the turning point in, in my life. I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, I want to take those skills of understanding how to be a smart commercial businessman and, you know, lead commercial business, but apply them to things that I really care about. What a transition that is. I just, as you said that, two things are very stuck for me. One, which is going to guide the rest of this interview. But the second one is thinking about our friend, Rhett Butler, who was a guest on the show a few weeks ago. And he told a story about being in Malaysia and working with palm oil and, you know, like really exposing palm oil and getting bailed up in an elevator by a Malaysian official and his two bodyguards. And him never experiencing anything like that before and being like, wait a second, am I in actual danger here? And being in very real mortal danger. And that was the difference of him being a photographer and him holding the narrative and the story. So you got to experience that many times with journalists as the CEO of The Guardian at the time. What does the responsibility of that feel like when you go from running billboards in Times Square to having a guy who's making 35 grand like with a knife at his throat? What's, what's that feel like? Honestly, I think it was really, I found it very humbling um, mm. because I did, you know, I think really, really good journalists are like tormented creatures. They're so, they're so in the weeds of what they do. You know, when you speak to the, you know, the, the journalists, for example, at The Guardian, the right around, you know, their environmental policy and stuff like that, you know, they're not, they, they, they see the scale of what we're trying to address. They live in it. And, and it's tough. I mean, honestly, as the CEO, it's, it's a very church and state existence. So you don't have any uh, input into journalistically what we're writing at The Guardian. Um, what you do have a responsibility for is making sure that those people are protected and we have the resources to support them um, in good times and bad. And the thing I always, I think I was always most was kind of most stimulating to me was every morning, you know, all news companies pretty much do this. Every morning you have that one-hour session where the whole editorial team comes together. As a CEO, I had, you know, access to that. And I used to sit there and just listen to the commentary of how these, how journalists, you know, on the same news company, with living the same values, will beat each other up. Mm. Uh, and really interrogate the story. Uh, whether that's, you know, I think Guardian was one of the, Two news companies actually that predicted um, that predicted that Trump would win the election quite far out, and the reason they did is because they had journalists sitting down in the deep south and those kind of and, and in in the flyover states down south, and they were living there. They weren't just flying in with uh, you know with um, with uh, candidates and stuff and following the election trail. They were living there in the communities. Um, so it was it was a super interesting time for me. But, uh, but it really, I think it was the jumping off point to say, okay, that world I was in and this world of journalism now, how do you put the two together and try and build programs to actually solve for issues? Yeah, I love this tension point. So a couple things just in that. The difference between the drop-in flyby or actually spending time in community. The difference, right? Like, are you an actual trusted affiliate or will the pollster get A, B, C, D, or E? And what's actually happening. I mean, the fact that we don't look at that harder and go, oh, well, the prediction actually happened from people who are really doing the work. Like, oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> people who were actually amongst it knew what was going on. And then the part that I really want to pull apart is addicted to winning. Because <laughs> being in that space, I mean, it's, there's a reason these fires are burning. It's, it's, not, it's not because we're okay with looking after each other. It's because everybody's addicted to winning. We are, we are absolutely force-fed this from the machines of capitalism, of all of the other structures that we live within. And so in that addicted to winning, this 
change for you, you've got to get a thousand no's before you get a yes. I really want you to do this thing. They're like, cool, we're making trillions of dollars. Why would we do that thing? Like, well, because the public opinion matters. Like, well, the public opinion says that our stuff is amazing. So why would we do the thing? And you consistently are at that. So to go from addicted to winning and being able to change minds and hearts for making money to having to change minds and hearts to save the planet are very different. You're on Better. I'll be right back with my guest, Damon Storer. Good luck. Welcome back to Better. And we're going to start with that same statement, addicted to winning. Addicted to winning. There is, I think, no greater rush than knowing that you've turned somebody's opinion or the state change or landed a giant client or done the thing that you believed was impossible and being a boardroom whisperer, I mean, that's your stock and trade. So what does that look like now? And I think what I'd love to zoom us out further to, to as well, Eamon, because there's few people in the world that have the scope that you do around capitalism and the structures and addicted to winning. So how do you believe that's influencing our planet? And how has that been for you? So take those questions in any order you want. What's it like to go from this is the thrill of the chase to, oh my God, I'm literally pushing everything uphill. And then how does that impact us overall? I, I mean, I definitely, starting with this sort of, um, I feel like I've been on a, a five-year detox when it comes to, like, feeling, like, addicted to winning. And I, I say that being respectful to, to the, the misuse of that word, right, with family members with living with real addiction and having lost friends and colleagues to the true meaning of addiction. But... I think over the over the last five years, I've sort of turned that um, love of winning into almost like a frustration or an anger with not solving things properly. Mm. And um, the blessing and the curse of being an entrepreneur is you truly can just walk away from stuff, right? If it's not authentic. Um, and that, for me, is like how I've sort of changed that energy. And you know, you, you, you've known Fair Share actually, Mark, from its from its very beginning. So, you know, I feel like when I look back on five years or nearly six years ago, there's things that I sort of cringe at in terms of like how we were thinking about solving. You know, like finding that balance of purpose and profit, or impact and and you know shareholder return and. And so, I, you know, it is a journey I feel that I'm very much still on. I've tried to build fair share in different ways of, like, you know, typical thinking of, well, you know, we're doing well and we're making some, you know, healthy profit here, so let's build a team. And then I built a team. And then I found myself getting frustrated because I was then running a team and the team was having issues and mm. not getting on with each other. And So in a funny sense, it's like the, the freedom that I've enjoyed – as we've matured, is actually not trying to build anything too big. Yes, there's bills to pay, right? And there's, you know, a living to, to earn. But actually trying to drill into like two or three projects that really um, are really, you know, you can really genuinely feel you can have an impact rather than trying to do too many. You know, we, we have a habit in our business, and, and I'm trying to get away from it, but we're, we're like an emergency service. Someone described fair share the other day as you're like a painkiller. Mm. You're not a vitamin, mm. right? Business should take vitamins. They should have you continually guiding, uh, reviewing, doing stuff. You're like a painkiller. Like people just come into you when they have a severe pain point that someone else has messed up or can't fix. And it's true. If you look at our work with whether it's JetBlue or Bayer or, or a number of different clients we work with, Generally, we're called in because something is hit a deadline and it just isn't an ESG program or is not working. And that's frustrating because you, you're, we're talking to clients saying, you know, what, what, you, what you really need to be doing here is building programs. What are the values of your company? Right? What, what are those values you live by? How many people work for these big organizations and 
they can't state the values of their company. You can state the values of you as a person. Like it's, you stand in a bar or wherever you are, you can, you can riff on that all day. So how many people actually work for an organization that either don't know the values of that organization or are, don't really necessarily believe in them? And yet these people are building programs and campaigns every day. That's right. why you end up with PepsiCo and people like that, right? Getting Kendall Jenner ever to make an ad, right? It's like, which part of this with all this work you do on the UN SDGs and the amount of energy as a company put into it, which part of it did not connect with your marketing team that went and produced something that is so inauthentic and shallow? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the tension of, of what we're dealing with here. It's like too often businesses we're trying to and i think the 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 fascinating thing here is is the pandemic right the big elephant in the room is covid as people we've kind of moved forward we talk about the great resignation or the silent resignation or all these things that are happening where people are like communities and society is like either checking out or thinking about a different quality of life or a different way of living we're still talking in business about things like smart business Mm mm-hmm you know, which bit's smart? Like the world has moved on from smart, right? The world has moved on from like um, the Jack Welsh kind of, you know, up or out kind of mentality. But we're so slow that there's a, there's a sort of a growth of the workforce evolution or the youth force evolution of how it's accelerating into things like Web3 and regenerative business models and business coming back into reality now post-COVID and saying, how do we be more meaningful for people? Right. Absolutely. How do we actually stand for these things? Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference between that facade that everybody can immediately see behind now, right? We've been talking about this forever. But when uh, Eamon says ESG, he's referring to the environmental, social, and government's criteria of a company. So the set of standards that a company's behavior uses around its socially conscious pieces but like all of the tiers underneath those things, are they actually governing by? And I heard you earlier say, we were really good at writing those things in the giant advertising company, but were we living them in any way? No. And then you go to The Guardian where you see these things being not only lived out, but lived out to the extreme. And so when you come back into the center of that, like how do you actually get people to, to do and walk that talk? And, and just a, the shout out to Jack Welch, who is the chairman and CEO of General Electric for over 20 years, um, considered one of the greatest business leaders ever, but had a very specific white cis dude way of doing things. Um, and we were raised on it. So I think it's an important note to go back and say those two things because there are people who are taking marketing classes as we are doing this interview who are studying Jack Welch. Right. And none of this stuff is going to help anybody, nor will it make any sense. But we haven't written fair shares trying to write and other people around are trying to write what it looks like in this new era. But you've got 70 years of stuff that goes back. that is like this is what has worked to continue to create and increase shareholder profit. Right. The shareholder versus stakeholder conversation, shareholder profit, which is ultimately as a CMO or chief marketing officer, that's your job, is it not, Eamon? Like, is that the center point? It is. And, you know, that's, you know, we talk all the time about stakeholders. You know, stop talking about shareholders and talk about stakeholders because that's what really matters um, is, you know, stakeholders are, yes, your shareholders, but they're your employees, they're your customers, they're your suppliers. They're the community that's wrapped around you. They're all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so what what's really matters now is is is, a, is about stakeholder return. Yeah. Because when when you think about all of those components of a business, um, that's that's where you see the multiplier effect that makes you a commercially successful enterprise. You know, you look at, I mean, it's hugely overused all the time. But look at a company like Patagonia, which is really just a group of activists who happen to run a very successful business, right? But, like, their best, their best ambassadors are their evangelists. They don't need to advertise. Their best evangelists for them are their customers, but their employees. Period. And this you is, you, we've been talking about this forever, and you use that as a golden example, and people are like... Yeah, but that profit line is not the line I'm looking for. They don't say the choir parts out loud, right? <laughs> You're like, yes, but you could have a wonderful life and impact the planet in a positive way. They're like, that's cool, but I want to have helicopters I can crash. 
So there's the, this unspoken chase for fame, why Kendall Jenner is used versus yeah. having the folks that we know. Folks, you're on better. Yeah. Keep it locked. We're with my brother, Eamon Store. We are just warming up. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. It's always hard to believe this is the last segment on radio. If you're tuned in with us, you know we deeply appreciate you being here every Saturday night, prime time. And I endeavor to bring you the best conversations that I think are not being had. You know, we we really truly are on one side or the other most of the time. And I would never say the word centrist, but I think that there's just got to be more of a worldview. We don't know what we don't know. And I spend every day trying to figure out more things that I don't know. And something really resonated for me when Eamon said earlier, we look back at some of the projects we did early in Fair Share and we cringe a little bit. Man, you already know how I feel. Like I look back at some of the things I was saying 10, 11 years ago. I'm like, my God, somebody give that guy a seat and take away the microphone, you know? But that's passion and we have to be okay to make those journey points like those are markers in our career where we learn the most because somebody says hey that language is not okay or hey actually this person has been doing this work or 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 and there's this long list of things that we learn but if we keep showing up we get to the work that we're proud of and i'm sure we'll continue to build on this work right so the evolution has to be okay we spit out too many things that we require perfection which we know it doesn't exist and we want everything to be perfectly polished or it's canceled. And that, that doesn't work, particularly in times of triage, which is where we are. So how does Eamon go from the perfectly polished brief, the selling the perfect brief, to being really comfortable with iteration and not knowing? How does that happen? What does that feel like? You know, it's funny. I'm living this right now. I'll give you two examples. Um, and maybe this is... Uh... This is also sort of part of your kind of as you mature into a maybe a career that you love. Uh, I was I was talking to a client the other day last week, and I'd given this client quite a lot of thought, and I asked to have a call. They were pretty senior global company, pretty two two ladies, pretty senior in their roles, so in global roles. And I was thinking, how am I going to explain this opportunity to them, which is so relevant to their business, um, in thirty minutes? And, of course, 30 minutes isn't 30 minutes because it ended up being 20 because they were 10 minutes late, right? And then they were messing around with the IT and all this kind of stuff on a Zoom call. Right. And as I got 15 minutes into this to what I felt was like quite a big, A, issue we're addressing and an opportunity, I sort of saw how agitated this client, the senior business leader was getting with just like the room was about to be, you know, come up for the next meeting. And I, and I was just so frustrated because I was like, why are we trying to squash these really – why has everything got to fit in these containers of 20 and 30-minute segments? How did we get to this place? And, you know, this sort of – I know, like, Amazon are big on this and Google and people like that, these, you know, standing meetings and 20-minute sessions. And, and I'm just like, sometimes these issues just can't be contained. You know, so mm. I literally – with this client, I was like, I literally got to the end. I, I think I was probably relatively blunt. I was like, because they're like, what exactly is the pitch? I'm like, this is not a pitch. This is me trying to explain that there's an opportunity for you to address a major issue, which is like 40% of uh, low-income people of color in America, like there's an increase of 40% in cardiac health issues through COVID, right? These are your people. They are your employees, you can do something about this. It isn't a pitch. It's not like, here's a program, here's a campaign we can run. It's a conversation. And I had a separate client the next day, and I was, and so I, I was like, that's a write-off. These guys are just too, she's more worried about who's going to kick her out of the room as a business leader uh, than, than how we actually regroup and solve this. And then I was talking to another client uh, around a, a whole issue around edu an educational program. A client said to me, like, how are we going to, how do we actually get to grips with this? I said, you know what? The way we start this is we've got to get in a room and let's spend a day just talking about it. I'm not going to pitch you. I don't have a presentation. We're going to whiteboard it, talk it, talk it again, think about it, eat something, talk again. And they were like, you're right. 
So let's carve out a day. And, and that for me is like, okay, that's where I'm going to put my energy, right? Because yes. you guys, you're both big businesses. It's not like, but you're getting it, right? You're getting that these things aren't just boxes to tick. And, you know, you know what this feels like. You've, you've worked with big, you know, big enterprise businesses that want to be a piece of Mark Brown and the Better Life Foundation, right? But how authentic they are to that journey I don't know, guy moves job, new new project manager, new, you know, marketing, you know, and all of a sudden the whole thing, eh, I don't know if this is quite what we wanted anymore. This isn't like a sweet shop, right, where you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I like the chocolate anymore. I'm going to go for the cut. You know, <laughs> it's like, I need to dial in on this, so you don't. But it's a three-year program. It's not like you don't just flip in and out of it like you're choosing comics. Anyway, Period. so you feel the energy. You know, you talk about my addiction to winning. Like, change that energy to like, let's stop talking nonsense and get shit done. Right? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. But how do you stop talking nonsense with people who only speak nonsense? You know, it's, it's really, you have to then translate. You have to become a translator. I don't mean that as slight. I mean, like, if I walk into a corporate environment, my entire vernacular has to shift. You know, we're shooting a sizzle for something that we're working on. And the feedback from my producer was, you can't say misogyny and institutional racism because we're not going to be able, people won't understand what you're saying. And I was like, yeah, well, I can definitely say that women across the board get paid 40% less than men and that people of color have been oppressed for 400 plus years, et cetera. And those are the same thing. She's like, yes, can you please say that though? And then, <laughs> so I use that as an analogy, right? To say, okay, well, I could, you want me to say the harder parts out loud or do you want me to use the, the actual vernacular, which we all should be versed on at this point, and I think that that's like when you shift rooms, right? You walk into another room, you are aware of, I am not changing who I am, my integrity, my ethics, my ethos. I am simply there as a translator or as somebody who's going to show up with empathy for the position that this other thing is in so that I may bridge that gap. Now, I didn't have that skill. And you and I were in a boardroom together upstate New York at one point. And we were, you know, we were shaking hands on long-term deals. And the center of that ethos was, we can't show up for this community in a little bit. This is going to take time to build. We have to be able to say and look them in the eyes and say, we're going to be here next month, next year, five years from now, like we do on the downtown east side, 10 years from now. And we're going to keep figuring it out together. And you're right. A corporate may say yes, but that same person may switch jobs in that two-year, three-year cycle. And then the person who comes in needs to make their mark, as you said so eloquently to me. You know, you talked me off the ledge a few times in situations like this where I'm like, why can't people just tell the truth? And you're like, that is their truth. You know, and it is a cycle of people moving through things and having to make their mark, which is the same winning culture. I have to win. I can't pick up this thing that the person before me did and walk with it. That's not mine. I'm not being celebrated for that. And we don't talk about that in the center of the culture. So any, any thoughts or reactions to what I just said? Uh, lots. But, you know, it, I, I, I think about what you're saying. I listen to what you're saying. I'm like, you know, I, I, I remember being in those rooms with you. And, and I, I remember thinking about, you know, thinking about my role as like a translator, right? A translator be, between the people doing the work, really doing the work on the ground in the communities, and, and what the business, you call them imperatives, are. And I, I think as I've kind of matured into my own business, I've become a little bit more Mark Brown, a little bit less corporate Amy, you know? Oh, I love that. <laughs> so, For very selfish reasons, I love that. <laughs> uh, and I feel, I feel that a little bit. I've, I've sat in too many boardrooms where people, are, what, people are, too, are, are too nervous about using the right terminology. When you live with people that take their own life, when you, that have taken lives, when you live with people of color – and you work in those communities, whether they're black, Hispanic, Asian American, whatever they are, indigenous. When you are working with people like Victor around disabilities, and, and you, you worry less about the words you use because you're thinking about how those people, what those people are trying to solve, not whether you're using the right language. Same. And I think that's for me is the bit. You know, I, I I don't know if we got time, but I'm going to come back to one thing, and I, I know. A lot of people are kind of nervous about naming and shaming, and I don't think of it that way, but I think of it as great examples of, you know, 
I, I'm really interested at the moment, and I've sort of tasked myself with writing some pieces. And what, one that's kind of got my attention at the moment is about this this tension of profit and purpose. And you know, Unilever is a company that's put out there time and time again as like one of the most ethical, sustainably focused, um, you know, UN sustainable development goal focused companies. And Ben and Jerry's is the you know is our favorite, right? And so when you look at that tension of a company like Unilever buying Ben and Jerry's and owning that and creating two different boards, one drives the values of Ben and Jerry's and ensures that they stay their way they are in perpetuity. The other one's about the business. And then you see what Ben and Jerry's did around the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not interested in the debate about what's the right thing to do. All I'm saying is Ben and Jerry's, without getting into the political side of it, said, we align with the United Nations on this. Yes. We believe that in a two-state system, the, these territories, uh, and we, we choose not to sell our product there because these territories are, 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 are um, occupied. You never back that until the business pressure gets to a point that they then don't and sell that and they company flop in Israel. And now Ben and Jerry's are suing their parents. So I'm not saying Unilever's <laughs> a bad company. They're the best of a bad bunch. Yes. Right? That's it. Well, on that note, we are, we're going to continue this exact part of the discussion on the pod. If you are listening to us on the radio, as always, I appreciate your attention, and our intention is to bring you stories that help us all get better. Amen. An honor, a pleasure. Thank you for being with us on the radio today. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. And just like that, in one heartbeat, we're back. Oh, you really came with the big one at the fucking end, hey? It's like, hey. I got I got some thoughts, Mark. Here's what happens when one of the most North Star companies for the last bunch of decades gets consumed, even with the right legal documents, because it seems like the right thing for both stakeholder and shareholder. And then a giant political issue comes at hand. So they sue the parent company. What's happening with that? It, it's unprecedented. So what we don't know what will come of it. Um... You know, it's it's. I mean, I'm super interested in it because this is this is the north star for business. Like Unilever are that company. I by no means. I really do think Unilever work really hard on trying to be the best they can be. But this is a great example of that tension, mm. where you know they come out with that release. They say we support Ben and Jerry's as an independent business to have their own freedom of decision. You know, and all of a sudden the the business pressure mounts and. They turn around. Right. So what will happen? Who knows? Who knows? But what Ben and Jerry's are saying is you don't have the right to sell our business. And there's, you know, funny enough, there's a board of seven. Two of them are Unilever people, and they vote five to two. So right. this is, I mean, I, I was talking to you know, a New York Times journalist about this exact thing, and his point was, we don't know because it's not, been, it's not happened before. The actual structure of how Ben and Jerry's was sold to Unilever is unique in terms of having these mm. two boards. So will values trump profit? In the interim, does Unilever continue to sell product? Yeah, well, what they did is, what I believe they did is they sold Ben and Jerry's to a local company in that region. <laughs> That's yeah. not it. That's not it. No. So, you know, there's, pl there's plenty of – I mean, this is going on all the time. This one just happens to be probably the highest profile because who doesn't love Ben & Jerry's? And because Unilever is the gold standard, what happens here will, it will impact how others behave. Yeah, I mean, precedent is just exactly that, particularly this case. So thank you for turning us all onto it. I've been watching it from the wings in a way of just like – I have distaste for those things, so it brings up. I got a little PTSD, so it brings up things for me too. So I'm like, I'm I'm good on that, I, and let's see how it works out. I'm sure the ice cream guys will prevail prevail because they're great. But let's. I want to switch gears here in the in the last segment as we hang out here on the podcast. And 
you know, one of the ways that I get to experience um, you is in facilitation of the youth and the climate justice movements. And this is multi-layered for you, of course, as a father of uh, an incredible young family um, who are also, of course, because of their lineage on both mom and dad's side, very headstrong, very well-read, incredibly well-adjusted kids. Sometimes when I see you facilitating the Youth Gov folks who are dear friends of ours and shout them out forever, that documentary will also be linked in this particular episode. I get it in wherever I can. When you think about holding that space, I often wonder for you, where does that meld over? You know, like I see you sitting on stage as the fatherly figure, as the guy who's been in the trenches for you know decades, who's there who also knows the real information. When I say the real information, folks, I'm talking about true climate information. Like, where are we? What is happening? And a lot of our youth are very well aware of what's happening. Climate anxiety, the number one anxiety for for youth. So walking in those worlds, let's put business aside for a second. Even though, you know, in the Venn diagram of that, you're 80% coverage as Eamon. If we put fair share aside for a second and we just talk about you as a dad and as a citizen of the planet, you know, how do you hold that space on stage, which I've seen you do from Seattle to Sun Valley in New York City. And then how do you hold that back at home? How do you answer the questions for your kids when you know what you know? It's, you know, it, it's, it's a very personal thing for me. And, and you've seen me in this space. You know, I can, um, the data that we have on climate, whichever way you look at it, is ex- extraordinarily concerning, right? Um, but we are so we are so, uh, people like people I know that are really in that space at the cutting edge um, of understanding the reality of climate, the climate crisis we're in, and, and and where it's going, are people that live with a huge amount of anxiety and concern, right? Because they see the reality of it, of how close we are to that precipice, uh, of actually. By the time we actually really acknowledge where we are, we will be beyond the point of return. And you see that coming through in, in, in youth trends. You see how people are less bothered about um, having children. Um, uh, you see increases in things like alcohol use, or certainly in Europe, you're seeing kids that are vaping more. There's less, there's less concern about living a healthy life, or maybe uh, some elements of that, because they're like they're living for the moment too much. Mm. So I don't know if that, if that makes sense. What, what I do see is when I see, when I, when I connect with the youth, as I do quite a lot, as you know, I, when I connect into the youth groups, I do it for two reasons. One is because all those issues that are concerning youth around mental health, around climate change and the crisis we're in, around all sorts of different issues, I do it because I see it in my own children and I, and I see it in their friend groups I see all these dramatic increases in things like self-harm, um, medication in, in you know, teenage kids, in reported incidents of like all, all sorts of different like concerning issues. Um, but it's also the part that kind of gives me the most hope because I see, uh, like, you know, Civics Unplugged, right, as a group. And that's, that's a really interesting organization of what's now 3,000 plus kids where it's like, let's just be clear that the system is broken. Let's not pretend that we're going to try and fix it. Let's agree that whoever's going to be president in this country is not going to solve the issues we have. There is too much bias. There is too much special interest. So we have to build from ground up, which means we have to teach kids, for example, at a young age of early teens, things like civic responsibility, how to have civil discourse, how to have kids of diverse reflections of society from wealthy to poor from different ethnicities but let's treat them let's let, let's give them the tools right to kind of reteach ourselves as society how to have debate discussion and 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 move forward and i see that and i see it having kind of real effect and with the view that, like, you know what, this is going to take three or four presidential cycles before these kids are then in positions of local or higher governance. And even with CU, you know, the time that's been around, which is really just pre-COVID, 
you're seeing in those sort of th- four years, you're starting to see these young, what were young teenagers now, running campaigns and doing these things. So I do think the only, the biggest hope I have is, and the energy I get, is from seeing how young people address these issues. And it's not just about climate change and stuff like that. It's about business. I'm super excited about Web3, Web5, whatever you call that era of regenerative business models, um, of that metaverse that, that I see the positive side in that, is these young kids now don't need, if they have great business ideas, they don't need private investment. They don't need like VCs or, or investment in the traditional sense. They're like, we want to stand up this business. How are we going to do that? Okay, let's create a DAO, launch an NFT, raise a couple of hundred grand. We're off and running. We, own, we, we are literally in control of our own destiny. And these aren't like dreams and ideas. They're doing it. Yeah. You know, they're actually doing it. So like you see these companies and I, and I see the mature businesses saying, yes, we'd like to work with these youth groups. We'd like to do this stuff. How can you help us learn? They're like, nah, not so much. We think we've got everything we need. Right? Exactly. You know, we think we got what we need. We just raised a couple of hundred thousand dollars because we sold some NFTs. And this is not NFTs in the sense that too many people think about them as uh, things that you flip for art or music or whatever. But actually, people that are buying those as a, as a digital membership of a community. Mm-hmm. And, that's where, and that's how they're raising money. So I don't just look at the, the younger generation and think, yeah, the kids are going to fix it. They've got youth and they've got energy and they've got all these ideas. It's like, you know what? It's not just about the issues. These kids are rethinking what business looks like. This sort of capitalist structure, which clearly is not for the future, of how you democratize the web and how you move that forward in it as a decentralized, as the decentralized kind of universe that it was always intended to be. I love all of this conversation about it. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. You, you were there, actually. So I think you were in the same conference. You heard that young lady. It's going to annoy me, but from ASU. And I think she literally sort of dropped the mic, you know, unintentionally just dropped the mic in the last interview on stage at the Sun Valley Forum, which is a, a great event. Um, and she, her question was like, you know, that classic sort of softball question that I gave her, which is like, what can we do for you? You know, what can we get, what do you need from us? And I think her response was just so, I'm really, it it really struck me because I've been thinking about a lot since, but her response was, you know, we just need you to help us accelerate by telling us the things that you learned and that didn't work so we don't do them. Yes. Like we just want to move 10x on what you, how you have moved in the last 30 years. So this is where I get really interested in like, this isn't about, you know, a youth led future. It's not, it's about this intergenerational, a genuine intergenerational partnerships of how seniors and youngers work together to help the, the, the vibrant energy of youth accelerate at the pace it needs to accelerate at, not our speed. A true wisdom transfer, like, like has existed in every single, culture outside of western forever sense language right it's it's like it's saying you know that thing that you did where you strip mined the planet for 70 years and didn't care about anybody below or above can, can we stop that now because we would love to know how what, what works what doesn't work because we have all the tools and then also i felt in the tone of that interview and many interviews it's like that and then if you could just kindly get the fuck out of the way that would be great too <laughs> You know, like if you could also just step to the side, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So this idea of like, oh, I'd love to mentor some, you know, I don't need your mentorship. Info. I need give me the information. Accelerate. (laughs) Yeah. And then get out of my way. Give me the information and like build the tools (laughs) and the structures around. And if you know, if you want to be part of our DAO. And so I think what's important, let's just define a couple of things really quickly. A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization by definition, also known as a decentralized autonomous corporation, if you will. And essentially it is a uh, member-owned community without centralized leadership, much like the blockchain is a ledger. The blockchain is a ledger of things that cannot be disputed because it lives everywhere. I think that's easy to understand. It's like it's 
decentralized. So, you know, uh, President 45, who will never go named on this show, has all of a certain document at his estate. Well, that would live everywhere. So it wouldn't matter if he stole them or not. We would all be able to see them. And so this beautiful thing of partaking and subscribing into a decentralized organization, we saw prolifically in Patreon, in Twitch, in these places where you support by a monthly subscription or by a one-time fee, the person that you believe in who no longer has to sell their music through a major, major industry or no longer has to create their art in a different way. They just need you. And so when we see that truest form of community, you put your money, your capital, your time, your energy, your volunteer, your design, your skill, your genius behind a centralized or decentralized rather community that you believe in. Like that, that isn't kind of the future. It's our past and it is the future. And so seeing these things move, I'm equally as excited if you couldn't tell about three and five and everything and beyond that. I think we get caught up as older folks and being like, does that mean virtual reality and we're going to wear goggles and we'll be living in a, like eight by t-? No, it means the opposite, actually. And, and truth will reign if, if I could be so bold. And so, Eamon, that's the part, you know, again, that felt like work. That is work. And, but it's also our, our lives and holding space for young people for, and getting out of their space is, is definitely the job and passing things on. But what, is it, what does it look like as a dad? You know, in this final part of our conversation, this first of many, you know, and, and hundreds that we've had in real life and on stage, what does it look like as a dad when you see these things and then you've got to see Poppy and, and the boys? Like, how does that translate? Because they're so smart and they're often with, you know what I mean? They're often in the same rooms. So how do you do? How do you deal as a dad? I mean, I, I'm just, I mean, I'm in awe of Poppy, as you know, and anyone that knows me knows just because of seeing the maturity of a of a human at the age of 16, almost 17, and, you know, living her life the way she does. Um, she holds me accountable. She calls my bullshit. Um, she... Her and all her friends are like, you know, they do. They, I still think there's this sort of, she sits at this kind of confluence of privilege and activism. So I think there's always that sort of healthy tension there. Um, but you know, I think it, even even in her kind of wealthier friend communities, like buying designer stuff now is not cool, right? This sort of this sort of show of wealth and things is just not cool. So it's like this the whole thrifting culture that we've talked about before is how, so how they how they sort of take these values forward, often with the imperfections of like the judgments they're trying to make. But I do, you know, I'm kind of like in awe of that in terms of like how I see that and I remember myself at that age, mm. right? How the world has changed. Um you know, and the boys are slightly different because, I, you know, we live in the northeast and you know, of America and we're sort of, you know, I, I think the biggest biggest threats to to our political structure in the U.S. isn't isn't how many people vote for this side and that side. It's the ones in the middle that don't tell the truth. It's the ones that say they're one thing and do another. Right. And so I kind of think about that a lot in terms of like when I see those communities that we live in and geographically where we're based is like making sure that, that they actually get to see a broader picture of the world. And I want to like next year, I've sort of made a commitment to myself. You know, I want to go and spend a month working in Vietnam or somewhere with them, right. Or a different part of the world and take them. Cause I think it would blow their mind. Yeah. You know, at the moment, too many kids where I live, they're just, they're just, uh, they're scheduled continually through the summer with baseball, loads of great sport. I'm grateful they're not sitting on screens all day. But it's like there is a world beyond baseball, guys. You know, as a Brit, I don't get it either, right? So <laughs> half of what I'm watching, I don't understand either. But you know, there is it's like now I see that in Poppy because she's been, you know, in London, she's living in London now and she sees a lot more I don't know, I think London's a more diverse melting pot than than where she would be growing up here. Sure. I see that kind of interest. You know, she wants to go and explore North Africa, and she wants to go and do these things. But I, but I'm trying to. I want to kind of pull that through for the boys and say, like, let's go and explore because when you get there, this is going to blow your mind. It definitely changes the way you're thinking. We say worldview very flippantly, but you can't have one till you have one. And 
you know, you can watch as many things as you want in 4K or Ultra HD, but when you put your feet on the ground and smell it, taste it and see it, you know, I think you know, but I had the very distinct honor and pleasure when I was 14, 15, 16 of living in Nigeria um, yeah. and coming from like rural, not rural, I keep saying rural, it's not at all, but like small town Nova Scotia um, in a very sheltered sort of, you know, low to middle community to dropping into Lagos you know, and seeing that in the nineties, my whole world changed forever. Like there's no unseeing those things. There's no unexperiencing them. And you go back and you're like, I, everything I'm seeing is nonsense. And I was addicted to the 30 minute when CNN headline news came out, I was addicted, like addicted, addicted as a young teenager. I'm like, Oh, I get to see everything that's going on in the world in 30 minutes. No, you don't. You get to see almost nothing actually. And so when you walk into a world that's so different, and I think that's a beautiful honor and privilege as a, yeah. as a father to say, I'm going to show you. And then when you come back, not only will you be more aware of your own privilege, but maybe it'll unlock something more and deeper in your own purpose. But I think it just, it changes the way that you live and that you appreciate and your eyes widen, you know, your scope widens. It becomes that ultra wide lens of, wait a sec, where does this product come from and who's impacting that? And where did it travel from? And what does that look like? When you see the oil fields at work, you think about filling your car different. Yeah, and so I love all and of that, man. I'll share a story because it actually relates to something you taught me. So it's very relevant in this context what we're talking about. But in Stanford, Connecticut, where I live, these guys are what do you call it, panhandling or whatever. But they're you know you come off the ninety five and you come down the, the the exit there, and there's people there um, asking for money, and they've all they've all got their own little story and their little written board and stuff, and. Some of these, the, the cities put up a sign which uh, next to them now, which basically says, um, panhandling is dangerous. Um, if you wish to give, please go to ct.org yeah. and select the you know, charity of your choice. And I sort of look at the sign and it really bothers me every time because it's, it's a new sign. I shared this with a sort of a, a business community that kind of gave me a bunch of blank looks the other day. And I sort of thought this is pretty much sums up really, you know, in terms of like this, the way people don't really think about those issues. But I've always taught my kids, you know, when we drive around Stanford or we in the area is like, don't question what that person will do with that money, right? Mm. Don't give yourself the excuse that, well, if you give them five bucks, they're just going to go and buy drugs, right? That's not the point. The point is wind down the window and have a conversation. And most important thing is ask that person their name and just tell them your name and say hello. And if you have a gift, whether it's food, sometimes we have food in the car, we always have a stash of money for that reason. And, and my kids have grown up understanding that actually these people aren't scary. You don't put your window up when you see them. They're not going to hurt you, right? But if, when you ask someone their name and ask them how they are and you look them in the eye, um, you see the smile on their face just being seen. And I think that was something you and I talked about, and, I, and I've always felt it's, a, it's an important thing. And when I see my kids now in Stanford, you know, almost uniquely versus their sort of peer group, I was driving down the road the other day, and Albert was with me sitting next to me, and he put that in the window, and he shouted out, hey, John, and the guy was going along on his bike, and he waved back. And I was like, who's John? And he's like, that's John. He's one of the guys. That's his community. It's about showing these people from all walks of life that I see you. Definitely. Right? And I give you that moment of my time. You know? and, I, and I think that's something, you know, when we, some of the projects we've done, but I think that was something that, that you also instilled in me as I was on my journey of like the importance of looking, you know, it's a very simple human skill, but somehow we train ourselves out of it, right? Is, is yes, if you have an offering you can give a person, great. But actually, one of the most impactful things is to look someone in the eye and say, how are you? Man, how are you doing, uh, really? I, what a beautiful and natural way to sort of dovetail this conversation. Because, you know, isolation is the single biggest cause of addiction and instability. Isolation, loneliness. Loneliness is something we cannot cope with. You know, we are not taught to be alone and comfortable in our own bodies. We're so distracted. We have a screen between the screen between the screen at this point, And we need constant reassurance and affirmation that we, we matter. But for the person who's living street entrenched or 
unhoused. That interaction means everything. And it means lots from kids. I mean, you... So, folks, you know, just as a quick reminder, we do between 1,500 and 2,000 meals a day, two blocks from where I'm sitting in the downtown east side, one of the largest open-air drug markets and centers of homelessness and mental illness and an absolute and complete and utter societal failure. Vancouver is a disaster. We have no competence or ability to deal with the pain that has been caused and what's going on here. Our role, my role, is to help get people nourished, to get them fed every day, scratch-made beautiful meals, but also to feed, train, and employ. So get people employed who would not have jobs otherwise because of barriers and because of societal structures. All of that to be said, it's just about isolation and about love. Like if you can actually see somebody and have the community start to see each other and to help each other up for the same reasons that Eamon said that the youth knows that the government will not lead us out of this, not for a good bunch of cycles until these kids get in power. In the interim, we as community, we as business, we as entrepreneurs, we as human beings need to show up and, and create as much love as we can in the world. And I say that with all sincerity. And Albert is doing that, rolling down that window and hollering at your boy, John. Like, that's, <laughs> that's fucking it. Like, it really isn't that much more complicated, right? To, to stop and to say hello to somebody and to acknowledge them. Also, they acknowledge you. Make no mistake that being acknowledged feels pretty great. And you also feel like you're on the in team, you know? You've, you've figured it out. You're part of the cool club because everybody else is just like eyes forward eyes on the prize, focused on winning a game that nobody ever fucking wins. There actually isn't a win in it. So, Eamon, brother, I can't thank you enough uh, for saying yes and showing up here. I, you know, as we discuss, like my mind visualizes all the different places and all the different conversations and all the different challenges that we've been with in and for each other. And I just, I feel deeply honored um, to call you a brother and a friend and to be able to share you with the audience today. I appreciate that. The love is mutual. And um, yeah, the community that you brought me into, the Hatch world, the, those different communities are, are such a big part of what we do now, right? I think without those, that journey that I've been on, I don't think we would be anywhere close to as effective as we are. And you know, the future for me is about human flourishing. Mm. It's like something that I'm super excited about. And that's that's the next evolution for us, I think, is how we, what that actually means um, in society. I love that, man. Well, you know, I'm ready to flourish over here. I've, I've been waiting. <laughs> uh, folks, you've been on better. This is the extended remix, if you will, or the extra innings, as we like to say it, with my guest, the incredible Eamon Store. As always, an honor and a pleasure to hold space with you, for you, and uh, can't wait to see you all next week. Take care.